Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 11, 2014, and my guest is Richard Epstein. He is the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at New York University and the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. His latest book is The Classical Liberal Constitution. Richard, welcome back to Econ Talk. It's always a pleasure to be here, Russ. Our topic for today is a philosophical one. It's classical liberalism. Uh, I'm in favor of limited government. I want to know what I should call myself. Sometimes I call myself a classical liberal. It is my preferred title. Uh, Sometimes I call myself – but it confuses people. Sometimes I call myself a libertarian. Sometimes a small l libertarian to distinguish myself from the libertarian party. Sometimes I call myself a free market capitalist or a Smithian or a Hayekian economist. And some people call me a right-winger or conservative. I don't think I'm either of those things. I want to hear what you are, Richard, and why, and I'm going to see where I fit in and what I agree and disagree with. All right. Well, I mean, first of all, there is really a terminological gulf, and this is what I think is the fundamental ambiguity. Uh, There are many issues in which uh, the subsets, the classical liberals and the hardline libertarians are in agreement. And therefore, the differences between them simply disappear when you start to take on many progressive policies. The grounds on which they may be opposed will differ from group to group, but the fact of the opposition is going to be very strong. So, for example, there's neither the classical liberal nor the libertarian believes that the government ought to support or to prop up any monopoly institutions where it's possible to have a competitive industry. And so at that particular point, both of them are in favor of a smaller government. The classical liberal essentially says monopolies change output for the worse, and so therefore when the government spends money to create a worse situation, uh, it's a clear no-starter. The libertarian says the government is using force to interfere with advantageous relationships. We don't care about the consequences. Don't give me all this fancy economic stuff. We're just against it. So one of them tends to be more consequentialist. That's the classical libertarian. The other tends to be more deontological. That turns out to be the libi- that you turns meant, out to be the hardline libertarian. Yeah, you meant the classical liberal. Now, yeah, yeah. So now what happens is the term libertarian covers both of these things when you're dealing with these external debates. But when you start to get a little bit more philosophical and are trying to figure out how small the small government ought to be, how the government ought to be put together, the difference between the deontological approach of the hardline libertarian and it turns out the relatively consequentialist approach of the classical liberal lead to some serious differences over a wide range of issues. And I'll just mention them. So, for example, the hardline libertarian says two guys want to get together to restrict output. Uh, It turns out that that's a contract like any other contract. You enforce contracts, you enforce that contract. Uh, The common law took the position these contracts are contracts in restraint of trade, and its preferred remedy was not to enforce those contracts, even though it did not impose criminal sanctions on the parties who entered into it. Uh, The modern antitrust guy says, you know what, we have the Sherman Act, and we're going to punish this civilly and criminally because we think these cartels can endure longer than might otherwise be the case even if the agreements turn out to be unenforceable in terms of the legal system. So what happens is uh, you have three kinds of approaches there. Uh, The libertarian just doesn't think of this as a problem, and his basic attitude is if you've got free entry, it will take care of itself. And the classical liberal says, you know, I really like unenforceability because it will tend to increase the decay. And then some of the hardline modern economists come along and say, you know, the Sherman Act is a pretty good thing on this stuff, to which some classical liberals like myself will say, you really have to worry about the problem of over-enforcement with the antitrust laws, the increase in the size of the government. Are you really sure you need this thing? And if so, are you going to do it correctly? And I think the answer is... If you get the right people running the system of an antitrust law, it's fine. If you get the wrong people running a system of the antitrust law, it's horrible. And then there's a very difficult empirical judgment as to whether or not you think good guys or bad guys are going to be running the system. So the great achievement of people like Bob Bork is they really did focus this field on the cartel-like activities of various departments, 
which reduce the error rate. The danger, of course, is that you'll get some other administration that will believe that predation is the dominant offense so that when people start giving better products at lower prices, this now becomes ruinous competition. And then you're right back into the progressive mode because the ruinous contra competition theme was one which was very dominant in their work. So there are profound differences in methodology. There are profound differences um, with respect to the actual consequences of the difference between these two sets of rules. So let's let's stick with this competition example, and I want to eventually uh, – I want to turn also to intellectual property where it also, of course, raises mm -hmm. its head. But in the case of, of the of competition and, and this question of, of enforcing cartels – you made the made the point that it depends on whether you think the good guys or the bad whether good people or bad people are going to uh, run the the apparatus. Don't we want a system that doesn't require good people? Isn't that the um, the essence of what we want to worry about examining? That's, that's exactly the right attitude to have because if you remember the situation, is the famous line of Madison says, "Enlightened statesmen may not always be at the helm," and so that what you tried to do is to put government in a place where it can go through choppy seas with essentially inferior leadership. That is absolutely the first best solution if you can get it. Uh, but unfortunately, one of the difficulties with the libertarian position, which I think the classical liberals are more sensitive to, is that you're going to have to put people in the flesh there, and you are going to get yourself a random draw, and that if, in fact, you consistently get people at the bottom, no set of rules are going to be able to save you from the depredations that they will impose. And so what you need to do is to understand that you need sound institutions that hopefully would put forward strong people into various kinds of public offices, which means you have to create a whole culture of achievement um, which will allow these people to flourish. Um, you can survive the occasional bad guy, but you can survive lots of bad people in these offices. And, I mean, one of the things that I try to emphasize all the time is that the reason we have such intense battles over ideas is that we understand that there are many people who are moved by ideas and will try to implement them in a decidedly non-public choice way if, in fact, they're put into positions of power. Uh, but the basic point you remain is still true. One of the reasons we want a constitution, which is, quote, classical liberal, with enumerated powers, uh, with separation of powers in the government, with federalism and all the rest of that stuff, is if you're going to have procedural safeguards of the kinds that you're talking about, they're going to work better if there are fewer unappropriated rents sloshing out there for political actors to get. Uh, so what happens is the classical liberal constitution that I talk about in my book has essentially at least a two-part strategy. And one of them is what you try to do is to shrink the things that are up for grabs in the public space. And then secondly, what you try to do is to get a robust set of government institutions so that you can slow down the process of lawmaking using as your sort of global background presumption that a statute shall be presumed bad unless shown to be a good, which means that you want to slow things up by having veto gates rather than rushing it through under a parliamentary system. Well, I, I like that, and we'll come back to it, but I, I want to stick for a minute with the public choice issue that you raised. When we talk about the mm -hmm. wrong people or the right people being in charge of a bureaucratic apparatus or a regulatory system, uh, there's, two le there's two kinds of good and bad. There's incompetence versus skill then yep. there's um corrupt versus honest and you raise and there's also yeah no there's a third one Go ahead. which is the right vision versus the wrong vision okay yeah well like guiding principles how they're implemented and whether they're implemented at all would be maybe one way to think about it so here, here's the issue i have i don't you, you raise the i think provocative idea which i which as a somebody who deals in ideas i find very appealing the idea that ideas are important because we can uh, have people stand for something. We can have people put forward, not just be a technocrat, but actually be somebody who has a vision that we could decide to embrace through an election or through some other uh, mechanism. Uh, the, the problem I have is I'm not really uh, – I can't think of any empirical examples of somebody in a position of power where the, their um, – their principles caused them to do something that was politically uh, unattractive. So I'm sure there are some. Maybe you can think of them. I I'm going to give you a couple examples, and then uh, you can try to tell me why those okay. examples are not representative. So my favorite mm -hmm. example I've mentioned before on this program is Alan Greenspan. Alan Greenspan was a man of ideas. He was an acolyte of Ayn Rand. He clearly mm -hmm. believed and I think still believes that he is a free market classical liberal. When he was put in charge of one of the most powerful parts of the U.S. government, which mm -hmm. is the Federal Reserve, 
he was put in charge in the sense he was chair. He didn't have absolute authority. He had, he had some constraints on him. But when he had significant power in that office, he was not a particularly free market guy. He used the price of of credit and the quantity of money to move mm-hmm. things around to benefit, I think, the investor class. Worse than that, he bailed out – he supported the bailout of banks in 1995 just as one example. I'm sure there are others. When Mexico was going bankrupt, its creditors were Ameri- – many of them were American banks. And he said we have to support Mexico and guarantee their debt because it's a horrible thing to do that, but it's the best of a bad lot. But, of course, all he was doing there was serving his – I believe his political interests, which was – the New York banks, mm-hmm. American banks, and those, especially those near the Federal Reserve. Um, so I don't see him, despite his incredible intellectual investment and ideas, that didn't constrain him at all. Similarly, Ben Bernanke, I think people would have been shocked if in advance of Ben Bernanke's appointment to the Fed, if you had asked him, if there's a really bad recession, do you think you'll increase the um, Fed's balance sheet by trillions of dollars, uh, implement quantitative easing? Uh, support the guarantee of credit mm-hmm. of creditors to the banks that had made bad mm-hmm. loans so that they get 100 cents back on the dollar. There's, oh, no, come on. Bernanke would never do that, but he did. So where's the hope for this um, utopian ideal that you put forward? Well, let me put it this way. I don't think it's utopian, but I think it's extremely difficult to implement. And if the reason I wrote the book on the classical liberal constitution is I believe that all the ideas that I stand for have been slipping into the background and in face grows a muscular progressivity. Now, the real asymmetry here is that you face political heat if you're a small government type and somebody demands that you do something to aid them. But if you're a progressive who believes that you want to aid people anyhow, it's much easier for you to align your ideals with the current political necessity. So take somebody who was really consistent with his views and had a legislative program of this sort. Go back to Woodrow Wilson. You know, this guy wrote books on congressional governance and so forth. He was very much a fan of a unitary system, believed in the expertise of administrative agencies, essentially was pro-labor and was anti-business. And, you know, he gets into office and all of a sudden you start to see the Federal Trade Commission. You start to see the Clayton Act, um, which has an exemption from its rules for the labor unions and the agricultural cartels and then has an expansion of the potential liability with respect to two companies merging that might not have been caught by the Sherman Act. So, I mean, you can see people like that. On the other side, I mean, you know, remember in the early Reagan, I I think it's fair to say that he came in with a fairly coherent ideology. I think he stuck it through to the beginning and did pretty well. Another one of my favorite presidents who is widely reviled and completely misunderstood is, you know, you start with Warren Harding, and he had to face one of these recessions in 1921 when he came into office. He did exactly the opposite of what Bernanke did. He kept the money supply relatively tight, the interest rates fairly high. It turned out you bled out all of the difficulties associated with the system, and the recovery began 1922-1923. He's remembered for Albert Fall and the Teapot Dome scandal. He's not remembered for having Andrew Mellon as the Secretary of State. He's not remembered for having Charles, rather, Secretary of Treasury and Charles Evans Hughes as the Secretary of State. And even his rather dubious Attorney General, which is Harry Doherty, learned from the Wilson mistakes and pardoned Eugene B. Debs, who had been convicted under Wilson. Um, who was a xenophobe when it came to all of these national security kinds of issues. So, I mean, I do think you can find it. In my view, you'll tend to find them largely, not exclusively, in the Republican Party, because I think they're more committed to small government. I'll give you another illustration on the Democratic. They're more committed to talking about it. Well, no, no, I think these guys were committed to doing it. I mean, look, remember, they're all facing adverse forces. And, you know, people ask me, what do I think the great achievement of Reagan was? I think in the first two years, you know, he faced down the FAA strike and all the rest of it. But essentially, his really fairly strong convictions after his political damage made that he changed the second derivative. So he increased the size of government at a slower rate. Um, I think Bill Clinton, to the extent that he supported free trade, did so against the opposition of his party and was clearly right in so doing. Um, I think he was wrong with respect to taxes and so forth. But generally speaking, you know, if you ask me to rate his governance situation, I think he was actually a bit better on many of these issues than others. In fact, to give you my hope for a decent America, strangely enough, it it, it relies largely on centrist Democrats, of whom there are very few today, uh, combining with sort of moderate Republicans. And what they're supposed to do is support a market economy and try to keep the welfare state under control. 
and that means free state, free trade, relatively flat taxes. Um, uh, you don't want to have too many positive rights being created out of this system, and you want to deregulate labor markets. And then you could have some kind of a transfer program on top of it. Now, mind you, this is not very stable. The only stable solution is one that you can't get to, which essentially has strong pro-market capitalism, and the only public expenses are designed to improve infrastructure and maintain other standard kinds of public goods. I'm in favor of that in principle. I don't believe it's ever going to be obtained. And so my question is how to make incremental improvements in the current system, or more often to fight bad ideas in the opposite direction. You know, a minimum wage is a danger. A living wage, which is, you know, 50% higher, is even more dangerous still. You read something like a New York Times editorial on this, they say, well, you know, in real terms, the minimum wage compared to what it was in 1938 should be $18. So why are you guys complaining? My view is they made a mistake with the Fair Labor Standards Act back in 1938 when they put this in there. And I just don't want to compound the error when we're going forward today. So unfortunately, Russ, given the current political configuration, um, it, it may, may, most of my sort of practical efforts are essentially designed to try to stop the expansion of government. Uh, there are very few areas I see now where it's going to be really possible to try to essentially reduce the size and scope of government, by which I mean something as simple as flattening the tax and removing or expanding the exemptions under the estate tax. Well, let me give you something. I'll give you a cheerful perspective, kind of, sort of, okay. kind of, which is, Good. and then I want to get back to some basics, but I, I do want to mention that. Uh, demographics may be destiny, and if we are, I think, somewhat uh, gridlocked in responding to the demographic change, which appears to be the case, uh, it's going to be very difficult to roll back uh, any of the health care for the elderly or, or Social Security for the elderly. They will eat up – that money will eat up a very large portion of government oh, yeah. spending, leaving very little left for other types of mischief. And if you ask me – I'm not crazy about the healthcare part uh, as a soon-to-be 65-year-old uh, with mm -hmm. God willing in six years, I'll, I'll hit 65. But a transfers uh, between working people and old people are, are going to be limited by the political process. I think the political process will limit those, but they'll be out there. We're not going to get – I don't think – I agree with you. I don't think we're going to get rid of Social Security, but uh, it's not the worst thing the government does. Uh, and the healthcare, I think, is a little more destructive. I think that's a little more so uh, unhealthy. Literally, but the um, the worst the worst a lot of things the government does now it won't be able to afford, and it'll be interesting to see how the political process. Uh, I hope we both live long enough to see how the political process uh, deals deals with that. But I well we're seeing it now. Yeah, um, that's correct. Detroit. Um, you're, you're seeing a case of a city that has great expectations going into bankruptcy, and you know it's a combination of ruinous policies, large public sector, endless transfer payments, job programs, and so forth, uh, with the highly successful um, UAW essentially driving down the number of jobs in Detroit and throughout Michigan to a fraction of what they were. People said, we've saved General Motors. We have not saved it for the 85 or 90% of the workers who actually lost their jobs in terms of total payroll since uh, 1979 when the favorable settlement was reached. Now, I think some of that reduction would have taken place in any event, so I don't want to attribute it all to unionization. But there is certainly the case that a firm which essentially has to pay all in $75 an hour for a worker as opposed to one that has to pay all in $45 per hour is losing a lot on cars that they can't make up with efficiencies in other areas. So I think we've already seen that. If you look at the pension crisis in California, um, both at the state level and also at the city level, God knows how many billions of dollars, probably $100 billion or more, are wrapped up in unfunded liabilities, and yet you see fierce resistance by unions and to some extent by the uh, state officials against trying to trim this kind of operation. And what you've already seen is the consequences of it. Most city governments have had to cut back their police forces, their welfare services, their park departments, all sorts of standard kinds of activities in order to make sure that the absolute priority given to these kinds of um, pension obligations under the current law as they see it are in fact going to be enforced. I mean, this is not coming in the future. It's coming. And yes, when you speak to younger people, as I do, I have three children, I mean, the tax burden doesn't escape them. They realize that uh, the liabilities they have today are real, fixed, and finite, but large. And the benefits tomorrow are speculative and uncertain and may never materialize. Uh, well, I mean, they don't, see this as a, they don't see this as a bargain for yeah. them. They see it as an exaction. Yeah. 
Look, I mean, I still have a standing government to the Commissioner of Social Security. And hell, I'm 70, almost 71. And I say, if I will give you all the money you've managed to take from me, and I will give you all the future benefits that you promised to me, if you'll just leave me alone on Social Security and Medicare. Yeah. I still, my God, myself is actually better off because one of the things that's so crazy about this system, particularly if you, you, know, you earn a decent income, as I'm fortunately able to do in this crazy environment, is that if you start to work past 70 years of age, you're getting Medicare on one hand and you're paying much more in under the Medicare tax on the other hand. So what happens is you're a net transferor rather than a net transferee. Well, fortunately – Fortunately, yeah, Richard, I mean, I'd rather be I'd be, rather be a net transferor than a net transferee, yeah. but I'd rather be rid of the whole thing. Um, uh, but they don't let you out of it. In fact, I was involved in a lawsuit once where we tried to argue correctly, I have no doubt, um, uh, that you could opt out of Medicare Part A for hospitalization without having to repay all your Social Security benefits and abandon all other future Social Security benefits. But the government issued a rule saying only a cranky libertarian would believe in that kind of position, and they forced the tie-in. Um, you know, so what they're doing is they're basically saying if people want to get out of the system and sacrifice their benefits, they just don't want to be in the Medicare system. They can't do it unless they want to pay what turns out to be on average about a quarter of a million dollars for the privilege of opting out of Medicare. Well, I, mean, I, you know, I just want to say I'm very pleased that, that EconTalk doesn't increase your tax burden in any way. Uh, well, and, and make I'm you... <laughs> not so pleased about that. <laughs> but, uh, but you know what? I, I, I'm, let me put it to this way. Um, I'm an academic. One of the things you learn to do as an academic is to do a lot of public speaking for free. And it's, in fact, part of my job as far as I see it. And so I'm more than happy to do it. I mean, there are people actually pay to get you to come in to give lectures. Uh, but, you know, you asked me to pick up a telephone. You didn't ask me to go out to Topeka. That's right. It's and it, and I and I prompt you for for conversation, which doesn't, which you don't need much prompting. I, I have to say, um, <laughs> let's let's get back to the basic, um, some of the basic philosophical issues, political economy issues. You've written that um, the key challenge facing any system of government, any philosophy of government, is creating social order. What do you, what do you mean by mm -hmm. that? And uh, why does the classical liberal and libertarian hardline libertarian uh, vision disagree on or struggle with that issue? Okay, well, first of all, social order, it seems to me, requires two things, one of which the classical liberal and the hardcore libertarian are alignment, which is that you have to have a mutual renunciation of the use of force as a tool in ordinary social arrangements. And everybody sort of understands if you could get this by voluntary agreement, generally speaking, you're giving up the right to kill any random person is worth not very much. What you really care about is making sure that no random person is going to kill you. Uh, but at this point, it takes a Kosian turn because the consequences, the cost of running this system of universal agreement is impossibly high to achieve, even though the gains from achieving it are very, very great. So what the standard political philosophers did was to invent a social contract, which was imposed abstractly or hypothetically, or which required this by way of a bargain. And the reason we call it a social contract is because there's no real consent. The reason we call it a contract is because we're confident no matter what the differences in human temperament or talents or strength, everybody's better off in uncertain proportions with respect to this rule. And that's the great argument of Thomas Hobbes. Now, the question then is how do you implement that particular situation? And unless you have a force at the center, uh, it's going to completely dissipate. But if you have a force at the center, the great risk is that tyranny will now displace anarchy. And the hard problem for a Hobbesian, for a Lockean, um, for an anarcho-libertarian is to figure out how you get those institutions in the middle, um, which sees a monopoly of force and then become a well-disciplined, regulated monopoly. And that's what the constitutions of separation of power and all the rest of that stuff are designed to achieve. I must stress, because you're a pessimistic guy in the abstract, and rightly so, most efforts to put these institutions together fail. And in my view, if the only thing you have are legal constraints of bone against bone, they will fail as well. And that ultimately the success of institutions depends not only on their proper formulation, but on having a culture of cooperation and compliance to make it work. I think a classical liberal tends to be more sensitive to these various institutional and cultural issues 
than the hardline libertarian who doesn't want to choose between attitudinal preferences and saying any of them are better than any of the others. So that's the first half of it. The second half of this is a decent social order um, requires that you start to have coordination between private individuals in order to get themselves going. And there's no question that the libertarian is right on this one as well, that the first and best system for getting social cooperation is to have a strong regime of freedom of contract, which allows people to pick their trading parties and to put the rules together. And that the only way this system works is to have a state which is strong enough to make sure that others can't interfere with the contract. That's the fourth problem again. And then secondly, strong enough so that it enforces the contract should one party opportunistically after its form try to beach. So this, so now at this point, they're both the same. But where is the difference? Well, there is nothing in the libertarian arsenal of tricks, which is in the control of force or in the enforcement of voluntary agreements that gets you a tax system. And how do you get that tax system? How do you design those public institutions? That is something where the classical liberal will do better. Now, when you say that you're in favor of taxation, what it means is that you can exact money for people in exchange for, under the classical liberal formulation, the return of a package of goods and services from the state that exceed the amount of the tax that's given. Now, these things are very hard to measure, particularly on the benefit side. And so every serious classical libertarian has gravitated towards a proportionate tax on either income or consumption um, as a way to minimize political discretion to give you the freedom you need to raise the amount of revenues that you start to need. And in effect, um, to make sure that there is going to be no kind of lobbying by private individuals in an effort to dump liabilities on their opponents and to secure benefits for themselves. Now, you know, you can have a flat stack state like Illinois, which is a complete fiscal mess. Uh, but one of the things that you know, as messy as it is, the governor there and a lot of other people there saying, you know, we do a lot better in this state if we had progressive taxes like the great state of New York and the great state of California. And my view, of course, is that's exactly the opposite situation. So essentially what happens is the classical liberal doesn't say I'm against all taxes, doesn't say that we want to shrink the government to the size of a bathtub or something like that. But what it says is we want to have a tax which is broad, non-discretionary, gives you some discretion on how you raise and lower taxes, but let every citizen know that they're going to have to pay their proportionate share of the gain based upon their income so that there's some kind of break on what is going to be done. And then have institutions of limited government with constitutional protections of private property, freedom of religion, and freedom of contract to get there. And hey, you know, if you look at our original constitution as augmented by the Bill of Rights, it doesn't do this 100%. It makes many structural errors. It has several more travesties in it having to do with slavery, the fugitive slave laws, and the three-fifths bills and so forth. But if you actually put the structure together, take the parts that have survived, understand them in terms of the general game plan, you can figure out what a sensible system of government is going to look like. And for characters in 1787 sitting in a cold room in Philadelphia, to figure this out on the fly with all the political pressures, you know, all the political pressures on him, turns out to be one of the great intellectual and statecraft um, achievements of all time. Bravo! Yes, uh, I, I agree. Uh, I want to. I'm going to ask you then to ask where the role of limited government starts and stops. But before we do that, that'll be our next topic. Before we do that. I want to get to a, a famous Supreme Court case I don't fully understand, and I know that you do, and help educate uh, me and our, and our listeners uh, about this, which is the Lochner versus New York case of 1905. Explain what that is and why it uh, is reviled by so many people, uh, why you seem to like it, and if, what it has to do with, if anything, our conversation. Okay, sure. I mean, first of all, I think the first thing to note about this case is it's title. It's Lochner. He was the employer of a bunch of workers in some kind of a factory bake, making bread. In fact, I think it was. And then on the other side, it's New York. That's the state. This is a criminal case. And what they're doing is they're suing Mr. Lochner for either a fine or perhaps a jail sentence. And his crime is to essentially employ his bakers with their consent for more than 10 hours a day and 60 hours a week. And so these are maximum hour laws. 
And the progressives loved these laws. They were championed by people like Felix Frankfurter with a passion which is almost hard to imagine today on the grounds that they're protecting workers from exploitations by their employer. Now, the first piece about the story, which is a little bit odd, is that it turns out none of the employees are protesting. They've worked under these arrangements for a long time with Mr. Lochner, and they're apparently happy with their lot. If you then start looking at macro data to see what happens with this so-called exploitation, it's exactly what the competitive economist would tell you, is that these wages tended to rise slowly with productivity, nothing fancy but steady and sure, and that the number of hours worked, ironically, during this period started to drop down because as the wages got higher, the workers decided that they would prefer a little bit more time and leisure, and they and their employers could make bargains for this. So if you actually look at this as a market phenomenon, there is tremendous social progress in the very period at which the progressives are claiming exploitation is the norm. And my favorite measure on this, Russ, is life expectancy. In 1900, it was about 46 years, 47 years for men and for women, roughly the same. By 1920, it was up to 54. Now, you don't get that by exploiting workers. The only way you can move those aggregates up is to also move people at the bottom. And what drives it is, in effect, higher incomes, which allow you to get better food, and huge technical advances in that period, chiefly with um, the discovery of the various vitamin deficiency diseases like pellagra and beriberi, and the simple cures for them that don't require an FDA or anybody in order to do something. So the picture on the ground is pretty good. But now what happens is, why do you bring this soup? And the reason it was brought was that these particular bakers were in competition with union bakers. And union bakers, in fact, had different modes of production. They had a crew that came in in the afternoon and baked the bread and went home. And then they had a crew in the morning that came in and packaged the bread and distributed it to their customers. What Lochner's bakers did was essentially they slept on the job. So they got in, did some work, went to sleep, got up again. And if you count the sleep as part of the work period, they're always in violation comfortably of the maximum hour laws. So what you do is you have one mode of production, which is differentially impacted uh, by a neutral, facially neutral set of laws that are passed to drive them out of business. And Peckham, who came from New York State, sort of understood all of this as part of the political economy. And how do we know That's it's true? Well, That's justice, yes. right? Justice, justice Rufus Peckham. He was from New York. He was a very complicated man. He was no free market fanatic in the sense that when you read his really strong antitrust positions and opinions, like in the Trans-Missouri case, the guy was relentless in his pursuit of cartelization. So, I mean, he did not see Lochner as a cartel case. And, of course, he's right. Uh, the New York Times, when it wrote about the decision after it struck down the um, tax, this was in April and May of 2000, 1905, it called it a blow against union dominance, or words to that effect. Because what happened is the unions were the chief force trying to stop rival competitors from taking place. So there is, if you're just doing the economics of this thing, a standard public choice gambit in which powerful organized interest groups are able to impose neutral statutes that don't hurt themselves, but wreak havoc with the production methods of other people who supply cheaper labor and better goods at lower prices, which is what we want in a market economy. Now, you've got to get this into the Constitution. And at this particular point, it's very difficult. Uh, the way in which the Constitution protects contract is, to put it mildly, obscure at best. In 1873 or so, there was a case called Slaughterhouse, and what it decided was that the so-called privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment, which says that no citizen, no state shall make any law that abridges the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the several states or of the United States. And clearly, this was meant to be a kind of general charter of liberty, including employment liberty, with respect to ordinary workers. But the Slaughterhouse case essentially made it very narrow so that the only privileges that were protected were those to use a navigable servitude on public waters and to petition the national government and withdrew from the labor markets. Uh, it wasn't over, however, because there's something known as the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which says, nor shall any person be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. In the 1890s, this clause became the source of two movements. 
One is the whole movement about rate regulation, which became a big issue then, was now subject, starting in 1890, to constitutional oversight on the grounds that if you get people to invest in heavy fixed equipment and then basically lower about, their we're rates. We're talking about railroads typically now. Railroads and public utilities of all sorts. But there's a risk of confiscation because their variable costs are very low and their front-end fist costs are very high. And so, therefore, if you give them only enough to cover their variable costs after they committed the stuff in the ground, uh, they won't quit so long as they get that little extra fraction. And so you trap them. So the due process clause got read to mean without just compensation. Now, the same argument is taken over by Peckham again into the law of contract where he says, you know, the right to have property, life, liberty, or property without due process of law, liberty, he says, means that you have the right to pursue the ordinary businesses and trades of a successful economy without undue interference by the state, unless they give you just compensation for what they take from you, which, of course, in these regulatory situations, they never do. So the argument on constitutional grounds is that the due process clause was only a procedural mechanism, had nothing to do with substantive rights. The counter-argument was if you left the privileges and immunities clause in place, um, you wouldn't have had to get this second-best solution. The other argument was that if you go back to earlier statutes, there's at least some evidence in the pre-Civil War period uh, that due process was read capaciously just saying, you know what, if there's any statute which is so warped substantively, we'll assume that it wasn't passed with due process. So there's this huge constitutional legitimacy argument in which I think it's kind of a standoff as to who's right or who's wrong. Okay, let, let, me ask, oh, let, me, let me ask you to pause there for a second. Let me see if I can okay, make sure, sure I understand what you're saying. Okay. So we have a bunch of uh, workers in a, in a bakery who are working more than 10 hours uh, a day. It could be – you point out because they were sleeping, but it could have been they just worked really hard. It was 1900 yep. – in 1905, there wasn't mm – -hmm. I think the average work uh, day was – a. Work week was about sixty hours uh, in it America little, at the time, yeah, it, and, and tending downward. So, but slowly, but down. So, in the New York statute, it was ten hours a day, sixty hours a week were the were the maximums, and these yeah. bakers were violating that. Now, the question is, do they have a constitutional right to work there, and does the employer have a constitutional right to have them work That's more right. than ten hours? And the question came down to whether, if you wanted to say the answer was yes, you could either use the um, something in immunities clause, the what privileges of the Fourteenth Amendment? Yeah, yeah, but that but was that was gone. Precluded. That had been so you, uh, that had been eviscerated yeah. by the slaughterhouse case. So they were stuck. Rufus Peckham, who thought but it was a good idea that these guys could work mm. sixty hours plus a week, and that that New York statute wasn't really constitutional. He was forced to argue that this was a violation of due process. That's what you're that's saying. Right. Now right? we haven't finished the story. Okay, haven't finished going. the story. That's a hard story. Um, there is, with respect to every individual substantive guarantee in the Constitution, an offsetting principle that in the 19th century was called the police power. And the police power, which was widely understood at the time, allowed the state to pose regulation and derogation of freedom of contract if it was designed to protect either the health or the safety of workers. There were other provisions about promote the general welfare and deal with morals, which are not involved in this particular case. And so then the question became as to whether or not you can justify the 10-hour work week as a protection of the health and safety of the workers. Now, this is where it gets complicated again. There had been in 1898 or 9 a case called Holden and Hardy where the Supreme Court held that a limitation on the amount of work week that miners and coal mines could have was in fact justified under the police power as a health and safety measure. Now, some of us may be skeptical about that, but if you think about it in terms of just the physical observation, you know, coal mines are dark, are dark places, they're dusty places, they're dangerous places. So you can see why it is that working too long would create real hazards. On the other hand, we don't know a hell of a lot sitting where we do about the means of production in these mines. We don't know whether or not the work rate has gotten better or worse. But you can see this becomes the benchmark after we create freedom of contract for the justification of state control over the system. So that's the second point. Now, the question then is, what about these bakers? Do they have the same kind of interest as the coal guys? And what happened is uh, all of the progressives like Frankfurt and company who wrote about these things, not exactly in that year, but a little bit later. Frankfurt was only 23 at the time. 
they were convinced that this was a health and safety measure. And so therefore, even if you believed in liberty and contract of contract, there was nothing to do to abrogate it. Peckham and a lot of other people like myself said, you know, to the ordinary mind, this doesn't look like a wildly difficult job. And more importantly, we know who's behind it. So this statute should be discussed as one of two categories outside the police power. Either it's a paternalist piece of regulation, which is designed to say, we the state know better than you do about how you ought to conduct your life. Or it was treated as a labor regulation, which essentially was a statute which was designed to suppress competition by one group against the other. And so the huge battle then came is, well, is it on the health and safety side of the line or is it on the other side of the line? Now, the split in the Supreme Court was threefold. Peckham essentially said to the ordinary understanding, there's no safety and health issue here. It's a little bit cavalier about it, but not terribly so. And so what he says, I'm striking this down, and he gets four conservative justices to go along with him. Justice Harlan, who's something of a libertarian, this is the first John Marshall Harlan, he looks at a bunch of um, history relating to 17th century French bakers and everything else. He says, you know, I really do see a health risk here. And so I'm going to support this legislation. And Harlan actually met what he said, because when it came to the question of whether or not you could force an employer to bargain with a union, where there was no health issue, it said, he said, this is freedom of contract for the employer. I'm striking this statute down. No mandatory collective bargaining agreements on my watch. And he did that three years later in a case called the Dare against the United States. The last guy was Holmes, who wrote by far the most eloquent and influential opinion, and also by far the worst opinion, if you actually take it apart. And, and what he said is on the health issue. In the minority, he, he was in the, the four. The, the minority five, four. of one. Yeah, okay. He, he was five to four, but the opinions were five, three, and one. Nobody concurred in the Holmes opinion. And, and this is a combination of his pragmatism and his constitutional skepticism coming out there. And so what he says is this measure could be justified on the score of health, period, full stop. And the only precedent he cites is a case called Jacobson against Massachusetts, which had to do with a vaccination law, which is obviously a very different kind of problem here. And also, it turns out, wasn't the health statute when you actually peel away all the layers of the onion. So he cites that. And then what he says is something which essentially the progressives loved and the classical liberals hate. He says a constitution is not intended to embody any particular philosophy, whether of you know, paternalism and the organic relationship of man and the state or of laissez-faire. That's roughly what he said. Now, so he's saying, miss, this constitution does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics. Now, our constitution may embody anything. You have the Soviet constitution. It can be a very totalitarian regime in which everybody's got positive rights to housing, education, and good food. The problem is the political order can stop you from getting it at will. Uh, but the American Constitution is not just a constitution, it's this constitution, which has a very different bearing and demeanor about it, and does, for its success, rest upon principles of liberal government, in which the suppression of labor in order to promote class conflict is something which is perfectly powered to put, perfectly prosper to put out of power. But the same Peckham who struck it down was smart enough to realize I don't have to when I'm going to allow free labor in competitive markets. I'm not going to have to commit myself to saying there'll be no antitrust laws with respect to the production of goods that move in interstate commerce. So the guy got it about right. He was not what we would call modernly sophisticated on many of these issues. But be fair to them. The system of marginal cost pricing and the full understanding of monopoly really dates only from about 10 years before, right? Then Marshall's. Um, basic principles of economics from 1890 and maybe Jevons and so forth a little bit earlier. Uh, so, I mean, it's a great intellectual achievement. But to the progressive, this thing went absolutely crazy. And it wasn't that they were anti-monopoly um, or pro-monopoly. Their view was, you know, we'll figure this out on a case-by-case -case basis. And so they will create labor monopolies. They'll exempt labor monopolies from the antitrust laws, and they'll impose monopolies on businesses because as far as they're concerned, they can figure out which of these things are good monopolies and which of them are bad monopolies. I don't think they're that clever. And the basic distinction between them and somebody like myself is I think that the anti-monopoly principle is sufficiently strong with respect to the ordinary production of goods and services, both, um, that it is entitled to constitutional protection so that you do not want to let the Constitution be organized when you protect freedom and contract and property 
in a way which allows the states to form cartels, which essentially exclude some individuals, raise prices for the rest of them, and permit, as, for example, labor unions in the transportation industry, massive disruption of goods and services by the unilateral action of a union that can strike. And this, of course, to people like Felix Frankfurter, was an absolute anathema. And you ask about ideas. It was guys like Witt, who was a famous labor professor at Wisconsin in the 1920s, who shaped a lot of the stuff on labor, uh, which took effect in the 1930s, where essentially the case of organized labor advanced by leaps and grounds between 1926 with the passage of the Railway Labor Act. This is under Calvin Coolidge, which essentially allows for cartelization of the unions by the unions of the railroads going through 1938 and the Fair Labor Standards Act, which essentially has mandatory minimum wage and overtime provisions. So I brought up Lochner because you referred to it in a recent article you wrote on these issues. You were talking about the ability of people to voluntarily associate, which Lochner clearly championed and, mm-hmm. and allowed. Uh, why else is it important or how does it um, – why is that right or at least then that right? It didn't – it doesn't seem to me it was – lasted very long. <laughs> I, I don't understand why Lochner is so important if shortly after that we get the Fair Labor Standards Act, which seems to me um, interferes with due process, at least as interpreted in Lochner, right? <laughs> Well, you're absolutely right about this, but it was a huge tumultuous constitutional revolution that was needed to dethrone the decision. And what happens is your account misses the incredible amount of storm and drang that took place during the New Deal periods, culminating with a series of cases which essentially said that minimum wage laws were to be appropriate. And, you know, there was a lot of stuff in the interim. For example, there's a case called Atkins against the Children's Hospital from about 1923 in which Chief Justice Taft in a dissent says, you know, uh, we're not allowing a minimum wage law in Washington, that is D.C. Um, how could we be so blind as to the social realities which require this as an introduction? And this is, you know, a Republican president. And it turns out, of course, that in many ways, the progressive Republicans actually were champions of the minimum wage. As I like to remind myself and everybody else, the Early, one of the early great labor statutes was the Norris LaGuardia Act, which uh, limited Sharp with the ability to obtain an injunction in a labor dispute in federal court. And who passed this? Well, it was Hoover who signed it in 1932, and its two champions were Fiorello LaGuardia, who was a Republican, and Norris, who was a senator uh, from Nebraska or some such place, who was also a Plains Progressive Republican. Um, Herbert Hoover was a a progressive. So what happens is the dominant intellectual mode of that period was going the other way. And what's so clear is anybody who was a classical liberal then was regarded as kind of an intellectual dullard. And that all the really smart people of the world understood the wisdom. Uh, This is not true, in fact. The ablest of the judges, in my view, in this period is a man named Marlon Pitney, widely forgotten today, who essentially at the stateside version... Um, struck down a collective bargaining statutes on grounds that were similar to those of Harlan in the Adair case in 1908. Only Coppage in Kansas actually has a more sophisticated account of how it is that if you believe in freedom of opportunity, which will produce improvements for both sides to a deal, which he understood, uh, you can get improvements which will improve both sides and increase the level of inequality, a lesson which is not remembered today. Uh, So that if you have two people starting at 10 and you have a contract, one could go to 12 and the other could go to 15. If you worry about the gains and sum them, roughly speaking, it's seven. If you worry about the gap, you say, oh my God, there's now a gap of three, whereas before there was a gap of zero. So there is a deep mortal tension between Pareto improvements with unequal gains that often happen in contracts and the notion of parity between parties. And there's no question that the progressives at that time uh, regarded the parity as the dominant element, and they assumed that if you were a big guy and you could enter into a contract with a little guy, you could leave him worse off, which is their definition of exploitation, when in fact you can't do that. Um, nobody's going to enter into a contract that they're free to walk away if in fact they're going to be left worse off, which is why, as I indicated earlier, the wage patterns during this period were moving smartly upward at a time of relatively little um, regulation. So it's the, the progressives who prided themselves on their scientific approach and their deep empiricism and so forth never bothered to look at the way in which these things worked on the ground. 
And by the time you got to 1930, after 1900, more women were in the workforce. Overall wage levels had increased. The amount of child labor and voluntary ways had, had gone down. And this was now a crisis which required further government intervention. But to bring us back to our earlier discussion, uh, you are skeptical that the freedom of contract and association, which Lochner at least temporarily uh, championed, is sufficient to bring about social order. So talk about why you think we need more than that. Well, I mean, what happens is there are two kinds of contracts. Bilateral contracts, this employer, that employee, or multiple contracts with an employer and many employees, market institutions backed by public force are sufficient to do it. Uh, but as it turns out, in many cases, for example, um, suppose you need to put the road together. Um, it's very difficult through voluntary means to establish the various links that will allow you to do it. Bankruptcy is a very complicated procedure, and what you have to do is to marshal all the claims of the creditors. And if you can't put them into a common proceeding, what will happen is there will be a race to the bottom, and everybody will try to exact their money before everybody else can, which will force somebody into bankruptcy. Whereas if you could stay the collection by individual parties, you might be able to work out a common plan so that the business will survive. And so bankruptcy laws don't work particularly well in that particular fashion. There are many kinds of production arrangements that you have which require coordination. Um, so checking systems across banks, railroads, and so forth. Sometimes you can't put all the links together in these systems through purely voluntary arrangements because they're holdout issues and monopoly. And so maybe under some circumstances, what you'd like to do is to have an authority, for example, which would mandate interchange between two parties on fair and equal terms. Not clear that you want to do it in many cases, but you may want to do it in some. So what happens is in the 19th century, at the same time that we have the celebration of freedom of contract with respect to these standard labor contracts, you're trying to figure out how you run a railroad system. And you go from Chicago to San Francisco, there are four ways to get there, and the cost will be X. You want to go from Omaha to Kansas City, which is a tiny portion of that journey. Now, in effect, the cost is 4X. See, what's happened is you take the shorter journey and you have the higher cost. Now, somebody today who tells you about Ramsey pricing will say, oh, I understand why that's done. Ramsey pricing is basically a proposition developed in 1926 or so by this guy, genius, named Frank Ramsey, who promptly died at age 26. Uh, who essentially said that when you have to figure out how you allocate joint costs, put it on the inelastic portion of the demand curve. And so if there are no substitutes going from Omaha to uh, Kansas City, and you put the fixed cost on it, they'll pay it because they can't go elsewhere. And on the other hand, they have four choices. So rate regulation became a desirable feature in 1887, and they were extremely ingenious. What they didn't do is set the rates. What they said is you cannot set the rates for the fraction at a higher rate than you could set it for the larger root of which it's a part. And since you apply this to just about everybody, you're going to raise the rates at the end. Is it a perfect system? No, it's not, because it may well be that the ability to exploit on smaller routes is larger for one of these railroads than for others. So the one which can forego relatively conveniently uh, charging a lot for an interim route may be able to offer lower prices for the longer route and put the other guys into serious jeopardy. Uh, but at least at that point, experimenting with pricing controls in network industry is something which nobody had really thought through. And the simple freedom of contract model doesn't always get you to the right result. Well, of and course it doesn't. Clear, no, of course it doesn't. The, the question yeah. is, does the does the rate setting top-down model better get, or worse? Yeah, that's the, it's an, it seems to me it's an empirical question. And that's exactly what I would say. Well, let me, I actually, let, let me backtrack from that. It seems to me that one way you could you could assess this as an empirical is to look at the empirical question. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you if you have general principles, and maybe your general principle is that it's an empirical question, which is fine. Uh, where so far, it seems to me you've you've laid out a case for police. You've mm -hmm. laid out a case for enforcement of contracts. Yeah. Uh, I assume you'd agree to some national defense. You've conceded. Yes. You've conceded that usually, usually these things take money. We, it's not enough to ask for for voluntary contributions. Well, that's one way yeah. to go. So if yeah, we if, don't work, right? Well, I don't know, but, yeah. it, but but I'm open to the possibility that it wouldn't. So we have the limited government that that you and I would probably, I think, agree on is those three things. Mm -hmm. 
defense. Well, I mean, also, I'll give you something else. There's no question you need a system of recordation of title, which is not a huge thing, but it's a big thing. And it's so efficient as a collective solution that nobody really worries about it today. It also became clear in the 19th century that common pool resources were a subject at which you had to have some degree of regulation in order to prevent overfishing and overhunting. Now, there are good ways of doing it and there are bad ways of doing it. And the difference between the two of them could be as much as fivefold. If you don't know what you're doing, you can make things easily worse. But I would say that there are a bunch of functions like this that crop up. And if you're doing with oil and gas in the 1890s, same problem. The extraction industry, either you have a unitization or a pooling system imposed by the state, which in fact the industry participants demanded, or the moment you get more than five service owners over a field, it turns out that everything gets wrecked because they can't agree to the voluntary bargain. So uh, essentially the pattern is always the same. You need N people, N larger than five, to cooperate for any of them to do anything. And it turns out bargaining breakdown is a very serious issue. And it turns out, by the way, in these areas with the oil and gas, you can measure what the improvement is because you know what the additional cost is of the regulatory system, and you then can see the increase in the output. And it can be a five-fold increase in output for a 2% increase in cost. So let me ask you about intellectual property. Do you think our current intellectual property regime, uh, which enforces contracts in a very particular way, is is a good thing or a bad thing? Does that fall under – I mean – this is, you know, it's a very large discussion. The question is, what is our current regime? The regime that I admired the most was the one that was put together in 1952 um, by you know, a couple of guys who knew what they were doing. And it was a statute that lasted until about 2011 when we had this American Invents Act, which is much more complicated uh, than the earlier statute and much more erratic in its protection. Um, I don't want to talk about the details of the two statutes, but the key feature is we do in the Constitution have what we call an intellectual property clause, which says in order to promote science and the useful arts, we're going to give you limited terms for your writings and discoveries, protection. And, you know, they shouldn't be the same for copyright and patents, a lot of mess. But essentially, hardline libertarians, like those from the Von Mies Society, are writing books all the time which says we ought never to have patents. Because what a patent does is it makes it impossible for somebody to use his own equipment in a way that he sees fit. So it trenches on private property. And then the same libertarians will say with respect to copyrights, if you have a copyright law, I can't speak or say what I want to say under any circumstances. And that's equally indefensible. Um, My view about it is that this is another illustration where the incentive effects from a decent system of copyright and a decent system of patents are so strong Uh, that you're willing to create intellectual property, but again, the design of the system is critical. There are many people who say, well, do it all by trade secrets because those are voluntary. The problem with the trade secret is you can use it for a process, but you cannot use it for a thing. Because the moment you put the thing out, somebody can look at it and just build it himself. They don't incur the fixed cost, and therefore they're only paying variable costs. So they'll undersell the original producer who will drop out of the market, and innovation will stagnate. Uh, you surely need this in drugs where the cost of a new drug is taking into account the time cost of money well over a billion dollars today. You probably need it even in areas like software, which are a little bit more complicated. And I think, in effect, it's a classic illustration where you cannot get everybody in society to come back and say, you know, we agree voluntarily not to use this particular device, which is invented by Mr. X, unless we pay him a royalty for it. So you have to do it by statute. And, you know, you want to do it for limited terms because information, once it's out there, can be reproduced at zero cost. And you got these elaborate trade-offs. And a good classical liberal sitting there and saying, you know, I think 20 years is probably about right for a patent. uh, But I certainly think it may be a little bit longer for a copyright work. I'm not sure whether there shouldn't be exceptions for the copyright work. Call that fair use. Maybe there ought to be exceptions with respect to the patent kind of protection, say, for certain kinds of research projects or one thing or another. And you put together a very complicated body of law. And I think, in effect, the old body of law was pretty good on this thing. Now, where does contract come in? Well, if you don't like intellectual property, you're going to do two things. One is when people violate your rights, you're going to give the owner of the property very weak remedies. So you're going to deny injunctions. And that's like saying if somebody encroaches on your land, you can't throw them off. You can only get damages, maybe. Well, there are going to be a lot of encroachments and a lot of infringements. If, in fact, you take that thing. 
And the second piece is you're going to say, you know, you want to license this thing to somebody else. We're not going to give you very strong remedies if it turns out that they <clears throat> use the thing in violation of its license terms. So I license something to you to be used in X, Y, and Z equipment, and you use it in A, B, and C equipment. I can't enjoin you. I can only get damages of complete mess. And my position on these things is once you start with the right definition of property, get the time limitation correct, which, as I said, for patents is about, say, 20 years. You want to give strong remedies for licenses and strong remedies for um, general infringement. The dominant left-right coalition is very much in disagreement with that. Um, and they kind of want to socialize everything, looking at the short-term benefits that you get from low marginal costs, ignoring, I think, or understating the level of innovative benefits. The argument gets more complicated. People say if you have injunctions, you're going to block other people's innovation. Um, that's the so-called patent thicket theory. All these patents block everything. Well, we've had a thicker and thicker patent field for a long time, and the pace of innovation has been very, very high. It turns out the mistake of that theory is Sometimes you develop a patent, which renders so many earlier patents irrelevant that far from being a thicket, it's like building a superhighway over a series of city streets. You get rid of this day-to-day -day traffic and the stop signs because this new process completely displaces the old one. And you really want to encourage those kinds of sort of quantum leaps in what the patent system tends to call pioneer patents. That was very well said. I, I certainly uh, – I, I, I'm – Pretty agnostic. I think I'm agnostic on this issue, um, and I, I I'm sympathetic to the idea that that there are barriers to entry that have been artificially put up by the extension of patent protection or copyright protection. But as you point out, the pace of innovation is pretty good. Now, of course, it could, maybe it could be a lot better. Uh, that that might be that might be the case. Yeah, so I mean, look, I mean, there's there's no question, for example, that patents should be subject to the antitrust laws. But what that means, if two people have substitute patents, they can't put them in the same pool. I think that's a very important insight. But it doesn't mean that if you have a patent, which is a state-granted monopoly, you can't discriminate in prices amongst your customers. And the case law seems more or less to get that about right. Um, so there's this huge level of intellectual dissatisfaction. It's now permeated up to the Supreme Court and so forth. It's in Congress. And a lot of the in-licensees, that is those people who don't patent but take advantage of patent produced by others, in effect, have become emboldened. And they'll say, I don't want to take a license. I know the technology is out there in the public. I'm going to use it. Sue me. And this becomes essentially a real breakdown in sobriety. One of the key reasons why you want strong property protections is it encourages voluntary contract. And if, in fact, you give strong patent protection, the thing to understand is the patent only covers a device. It doesn't cover a functionality. So, I mean, if somebody could figure out a same way to do the same thing with a different technique, you can't stop them. So the famous case on this is Samuel Morse could patent his telegraph device, but he could not patent the, electro, the use of the electromagnetic spectrum, electromagnetic spectrum so that nobody else could define a different kind of telegraph or telephone. And if you keep all these distinctions right, and it's kind of murky, the system is pretty good. Um, and that's what the earlier statutes had done. I mean, you know, I have spent a lot of time teaching statutes like the Patent Act of 52, the Federal Rules of 38, the Commercial Code of 62, all in the last sentence, all in mid-century, roughly speaking. And if you look at them really closely, you can always find some little nit. They get it wrong, some vagueness, kind of regret it. But if you start to back off a little bit and you ask yourself, is this a system-wide improvement? And did they do a pretty good darn, darn good job on it? My view is these statutes become kind of quasi-constitutional because they are so good in terms of their basic intuitions that the correct thing to do is to figure out how to make incremental modifications of them rather than to blow them up and to keep them down. So Federico and Rich were the two guys, two guys, mind you, who put together the whole 1952 Patent Act, which was approved by voice vote. Hmm. Now, those guys were the two ablest patent lawyers of their generation. Hats off to them. They actually knew what they were doing. So, and, you know, so, most of the people today are rank amateurs. You know, you get everybody in Congress is an expert on the patents. So we're, we're out of time. So I'm just going to try to sum up what was a very wide-ranging conversation and, and, get you, and I'll give you the last word. Um, so it, it seems to me that we started off contrasting classical liberals who favor limited government 
uh, with hardline libertarians who are more in the anarcho-capitalist uh, camp, who, mm. who want to see everything emerge voluntarily. So I have sympathies with both camps. I would say your position, but pragmatically, your position is – I think it's mine – is that I'm willing to set some governments – Inevitable, good idea. The question is how do you how do you limit it and how do you structure it in a way that it's most effective? And your goal seems to me to be what you said a second about about two minutes ago. You said, well, the outcome's pretty good. That's that's a tremendous achievement, pretty good. And you weren't talking about the statutes, you were more praiseworthy of those, but you're talking about just this general philosophy. So you're a pragmatist in that you understand that there are some of these uh the economics of these situations are gonna cause uh, a demand for government, you'd like it to be sensible. You recognize the fact that it might not be sensible because of public choice or other factors, but that's probably the best we can do. And um, I think we both agree that we're a long way from either ideal world, no matter what. So in that sense, it doesn't matter so much. What's your last no, word? I think, well, my last word is the first word I said. If you're dealing with the huge government we have today, both forms of libertarianism give you an intellectual break on what's going on. I think the huge political advantage of being a classical liberal is you don't have to fight absurdities, which can be charged against you um, by saying, oh, you think there ought to be zero taxes. Uh, you don't think there should be the private ownership of public streets. Um, you don't believe in any public education. The last one being, I think, very complicated. It is, in fact, I think, easier to defend against progressives if you admit the need for collective government action and then try to sensibly structure it, then it is to say all this thing is a complete mistake because you don't want to have somebody who's persuaded, I proved to you that public streets are really very sensible, so therefore the libertarian is completely wrong on labor and on everything else. And so this ability to distinguish between market-type situations, network industries are not the same as purely competitive industries, for example. Monopolies are not the same as purely competitive industries are there. And you try to push competitive markets and their desirable equilibriums is what you want. And where you can't get them, as you can't in network industries and certain kinds of natural monopolies, what you try to produce is the situation through regulation that at lowest cost gets you close to that end. At that point, it's a matter of technique. The libertarians have nothing to say about technique. But if you really know the economics and you understand what you're trying to do, what you will discover is that regulation bad is really a lot worse than regulation good. And you could make intelligent contributions to the long-term debate within the framework of limited government without having to constantly call on the nuclear option, blow the whole thing up, because we want to fit the government into a bathtub, to quote uh, Grover Norquist. Uh, not going to fit into a bathtub. Even a first best government doesn't get close to a bathtub. Um, you want to run a serious economy, you better make sure and understand that it's going to probably consume in one form or another 20% of your resources. And the richer you are, the smaller the fraction. That's the good news. My guest today has been Richard Epstein. Richard, thanks as always for being part of Econ Talk. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>